You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the NNO hosting this week, and with me are Will Doran, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, and we have a uh, very special guest today, uh, Katie Glick from the D.C. Bureau. Uh, the McClatchy D.C. Bureau is in town. Um, she's going to go down to the uh, Republican Convention, which is this weekend in Wilmington, uh, and uh, cover a little bit of that. Uh, and she's also been covering Republican Party politics all over the country uh, the last couple months. Uh, so uh, Katie's going to tell us a little bit about kind of what she's found. Uh, a lot of craziness in D.C. lately, uh, much of it circulating around Trump and Russia. Um, so what's been the Republican rank and files reaction to that as, as you've seen uh, in some of the different uh, places you've been lately? Hey, well, great to be with you. It's really fun to join you all here today. Um, So Republicans are of two minds on this issue about uh, Trump and Russia and the extent to which there was Russian involvement in in, in the election. And of course, as that all ties back to to FBI director, former FBI director James Comey, of course, was looking into this, has been fired now and uh, is set to testify before Congress next week. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the Republican kind of rank and file grassroots, uh, you know, Colin and I are going to be uh, down at, at the convention over the weekend and, and asking folks about this. But but what I've heard from other uh, Republican grassroots folks from around the country is, is the feeling that this Russia issue, and of course it's a complex one, uh, is really a distraction. Uh, they don't buy that uh, there was, some people don't buy that there was meddling in, in a way that sort of unduly helped President Trump uh, win election. Uh, They think that this issue is trumped up. It's media driven. Uh, It's driven by Democrats who want to uh, see the president uh, stumble and they would like to move on and talk about jobs numbers and talk about the economy, uh, etc. So bottom line, many folks in the grassroots just aren't buying this as that significant of an issue. On the other hand, there are Republican donors, there are Republican operatives who are very concerned about this issue, Um, some concerned at a substantive level, certainly, and will be watching uh, former Director Comey's testimony next week, um, because they do have some some significant concerns about whether the president pressured uh, Jim Comey about sort of what that relationship was like. Um, and then they also really have concerns about the extent to which this broader Russia issue is knocking uh, the Republican Party so off message that, that perhaps that may impede them from delivering on their campaign promises from 2016 in a way that uh, could have a pretty detrimental effect uh, on Republicans in the midterms. So what do they see as uh, Trump accomplishments so far? Are they uh, excited about the health care bill? It has such low approval ratings whenever you see polls on it. Um, what's, what's their uh, feeling about how he's doing on the issues? Sure. Well, it certainly depends on whom you ask. Uh, almost every Republican you talk to will be very excited about Neil Gorsuch, of course, the uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, choice of the president, who, who of course, has successfully made it onto the court. Um, you know, many of them want to see health care uh, repeal, the, the, I guess President Obama's uh, health care law fully repealed and replaced. Um, so you know, some were heartened by uh, the, the efforts uh, that we saw in the House. 
Obviously, it's going to be a much longer, uh, more complicated legislative process. The Senate has made that pretty clear. Um, but they really want to see more activity on that front. They want to see health care get done. They want to see tax reform get done. They want to see infrastructure get done, not only because these are the things uh, that uh, you know Republicans promised, and, and of course now Republicans control you know, all of Washington, uh, but also because that you know the extent to which they can point to some real accomplishments uh, is going to determine really uh, whether they're able to hold on to their majorities in the fall of 2018. So how do you think the uh, climate deal is going to play into all this? Does it have any effect? Usually when you uh, uh, poll people, that's environment is very low on their list of concerns, but it does play into the economy too and the energy economy. So I, how do you see that playing out, especially among Republicans? Well, you make a good point uh, that that doesn't tend to be sort of the motivating factor for people when they go to vote. Um, Republicans, those who like President Trump and those who privately and less privately don't, um, they, they actually, for the most part, seemed, in, at least in the early stages here, and, and of course we're still watching the fallout, but generally many of them seem to be okay with it. Of course, there were some prominent exceptions. Mitt Romney, for example, uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, opposed to, uh, to, to the decision to withdraw from the, the agreement, often the uh, the Republican concerns about this, to the extent that we've heard them, stem from a fear that by pulling out of this agreement, that the U.S. is taking another step towards sort of ceding uh, our leadership role in, in the world. So to the extent you hear concerns, it's on that front. Now, where this could make a, a bigger difference politically, I think, is with uh, democratic energy. And, you know, of course, we've already seen uh, all across the country, uh, the democratic grassroots very fired up, and this just adds more fuel to that fire. Yep. All right. Well, we're really excited to have you here this week, and feel free to jump in as we kind of talk about uh, the state politics of the And week. while we're yeah. talking to Katie, I should make a shameless cross-promotion plug for the podcast that uh, Katie and I are involved in uh, some weeks uh, with uh, the McClatchy DC Bureau. Beyond the Bubble looks at uh, politics both nationally and at the uh, what's going on in the states and battleground states across the country, uh, and you can subscribe to that. Same place you get this podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you have your favorite app at. So check that out if you want to hear uh, more from Katie and occasionally uh, me as well. Absolutely. Yeah, the D.C. Bureau following in our footsteps. Theirs is a little more slick, I think. Yeah, we they actually have a producer for theirs and uh, outtakes, and uh, they actually uh, will sometimes re-record sections that they don't do very well, whereas we just you, – you get it unfiltered here on Domecast. <laughs> 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 we rarely take it out unless it's slander. Uh, so uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about the budget and a little bit about the gun bill that's been uh, uh, of interest this week in the legislature. Uh, Colin, you had two late nights uh, till 12.30 a.m. both nights, I think? Yeah, roughly, yeah. So the um, the budget in the House sort of came out in drips and dregs this year rather than uh, having a big press conference to uh, formally announce uh, what was going on uh, and, and what all the provisions were going to be and then roll out the document. Uh, they rolled out some of the subject area portions of it, so you know, exactly how they're going to spend money on education and health and human services, transportation, and all that. Uh, last week... Uh, then the rest of it didn't come out till this week. So Tuesday morning, they put out the tax package um, in the Finance Committee eight, at 8.30 in the morning. 
and then the full like hundred upon you know three or four hundred page budget didn't show up until about ten thirty or eleven o'clock that night online. Um, so that was when we finally figured out okay, what are they doing about uh, state employee raises and teacher raises uh, and some of the other uh, sort of big spending uh, stuff that that's in there. Uh, so in order to sort of figure all that out, I think we were up writing a story till twelve thirty that night, and then uh, last night Thursday night um, they had their uh, midnight session to do the final vote. I had some questions on Twitter about why do they keep doing these midnight sessions? Why not do this in the light of day when it's more transparent? And the reason behind doing a midnight session um, is that most of these legislators are sort of part-time legislators, so they're not getting paid that much. They're usually not here on Fridays, um, but under state law, they can't vote the budget, uh, both votes on the budget in the same day. Uh, They have to be on separate days, and the way they managed to get around this and still take two votes within two or three hours is to do uh, one vote, in this case last night at uh, 10.30 at night, and then come back technically on Friday uh, because it was after midnight um, and do the final vote and then uh, sort of end the process on the House side and set up the uh, negotiating process with the Senate. Um, so that ended up being a, a vote at about 12.30 a.m. last night. Couldn't they just avoid this by doing it earlier in the week? Yeah, that would that would be an option, too. Um, there... I think by the time you go through the committee process, um, that takes some time out of it. I think there's also a concern, too, of leaving it open too much on the weekends. Um, A lot of, uh, particularly, I think the budget probably would be fine on this just because it does have pretty overwhelming support, at least this year. Uh, But a lot of issues lawmakers want to get through during the week because once the legislators go home to their districts and start talking to constituents, they can start to get pressured on issues to vote a certain way. So uh, the caucus on the Republican side and, and maybe to some degree the Democrats as well may think they have a certain number of votes for a bill on Thursday when they leave town. But by the time they show back up on Monday, um, things have changed. Uh, There have been lobbying campaigns from various advocacy groups. They've run into people in the supermarkets who have opinions. um, And suddenly they're they're more wary about their votes. So a lot of times they they do want to try to go from releasing a budget bill to passing a budget bill within a few days uh, before giving everyone a chance to go home and mull it over. Okay. And you alluded to the fact that there's a fair amount of support for the budget this year. Uh, There were several Democrats who voted for it. So how unusual is that? Yeah, there's been usually, uh, I think the last couple of years on the House side, a number of Democrats who will vote for the budget, uh, in part because uh, they want to sort of show some support for the House going into the negotiating process. Uh, The Senate is typically a party line vote on the budget and has been for several years. And the Senate is more uh, has often gone with a more controversial budgeting approach. They put a lot of policy items in there that uh, people have strong opinions about. And they also, uh, this year they're spending the same amount, but in past years the Senate has wanted to spend less. Uh, this year the Senate's doing a bigger tax cut than what the House wants to do. Uh, so Democrats, particularly moderate Democrats in the House, uh, often will vote yes sort of to show that uh, they really do think the House document is a, is a better budget option than the Senate. Of course, most Democrats, I think, uh, say their ideal budget plan is what the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, has come up with, which, of course, has no chance of passage in a Republican-dominated legislature. Um, so that's sort of the reason behind that. This year, you saw some moderate Republicans vote for, or moderate Democrats vote for the budget. Uh, it was probably about 10 or so of them total, uh, including a lot of the, the African-American representatives, which I'm not sure what some of the rationale was for that. Um, I know there's been some 
debates in this year's budget about charter schools, which uh, has created some interesting divides among the Democrats. Uh, I ran into uh, Representative Cecil Brockman, uh, who's a, an African-American Democrat from High Point in the snack bar on uh, Thursday night, and he was telling me about the amendment that he was teaming up with the Republican on on charter schools, uh, that uh, they wanted to start this grant program that would help charter schools uh, offer transportation to students, but only for charter schools that had a high population of low-income students. And he's basically saying, look, this is directly targeted, not at the charter schools that are serving affluent white people, but the charter schools that are designed to serve low-income, predominantly minority students. And he was behind that and was uh, seemed very surprised that the rest of his party was not uh, joining him in support of that, because uh, I think most of the, a lot of the Democrats were basically uh, taking sort of an anti-charter school approach to um, having this extra funding for them. So we had a lot of information about what the budget does last week when we had a discussion about it, but we also learned this week that they're going to give, uh, uh, the House wants to give $1,000 uh, a person state employee raises. Um, they want to give uh, uh, teacher raises, I think averaging a little over 3%, but, uh, but varying depending on years of experience. Um, but there was some debate about this, and they uh, passed, they uh, considered and rejected an amendment uh, on how to do teacher uh, and state employee raises, maybe do them all the same. Um, yeah, so, so this was interesting. That. Yeah. Um, so the way, plan this year in the House budget um, is a $1,000 flat raise to most state employees who aren't teachers or in some sort of other category, uh, which is different from the percentage approach they've used in the past. In the past, it's been, you know, anywhere from uh, 1% to 2%. So that effectively means that if you're on the low end of the pay scale, uh, you're not getting that much. If you're on the high end of the pay scale, you're getting more. So by doing $1,000 raises, that's going to be really good for somebody who's, you know, a prison guard or somebody who's not making a whole lot of money. Not so great for somebody who's making six figures and leading a state agency. Um, and then on the teacher side, it's really variable. If you're a teacher and you're wanting to see uh, how this pay plan impacts you, you almost have to go to the chart year by year and say, okay, I'm currently making this amount as a sixth year teacher. As a seventh year teacher under the Senate plan, I would make this much more. Under the House plan, I would make this much more. Because it's really, it's almost even hard to describe with a broad brush because um, it, it kind of goes up and down in percentage from year to year. Uh, I think in general, the House was pushing uh, bigger raises for the most experienced teachers, whereas the Senate was, I think, uh, kind of focusing on mid-career and trying to get people to the top of the pay scale 15 years in. Um, but in general, you almost can't make great generalizations about that. But anyway, there's a amendment last night uh, from Jonathan Jordan, who's a Republican from up in Ashe County, uh, that he wanted to do away with this whole idea of uh, treating different types of state employees differently in terms of raises and just essentially take the amount of uh, money available for raises and divide it up evenly among however many state employees there are, uh, which comes out to, I think, a $1,200 uh, raise per employee. Uh, that very quickly got shot down, which was, it was interesting to see a Republican come out with an idea that uh, the speaker manages to kill within about three or four minutes. Uh, this was through a, a procedural uh, approach of saying that the amendment was out of order. It couldn't be considered uh, because it uh, violated some rule about moving money from one category to another. Um, oddly enough, in a it's a kind of strange moment of bipartisanship last night. The House Democratic leader, Darren Jackson, uh, made a motion to vote on the ruling of the speaker that this was out of order. Um, and the vote went in the speaker's favor, but by, by, by not by a whole lot, uh, which was kind of interesting. So it was, in a way, it was a vote on whether Jordan's plan to do equal pay raises was a good idea or not. Um, but it can also be spun as well. You know, we're just following the rules. 
Is there anything else before we uh, talk about the gun bill? Is there anything else in the budget that you're watching as you uh, as we start negotiations now between the House and the Senate? You know, some of the programming cuts will be interesting to see. The Senate uh, did some very interesting and sort of headline-grabbing things with food stamps, changing the eligibility process that uh, would kick uh, tens of thousands of people off of food stamps, uh, something very similar to what's in uh, President Trump's budget uh, at the national level. And then there's the, the infamous 3 a.m. cuts where uh, the Republicans sort of retaliated or appear to have retaliated in some ways uh, against Democrats in the Senate by cutting some education programs in counties represented by Democrats. None of that's in the House budget. Uh, there's also cuts to the governor's school and the UNC School of Law in the um, Senate budget that's not in the House. All of these will become bargaining chips. Um, and in fact, we even heard a couple times during the House budget debate, uh, people question certain amendments or certain provisions. And the budget writers were actually very honest about it. They said, this is a bargaining chip. We we hope to get this program, but not funded through this way. But we think if we do it this way, that puts us in a stronger negotiating position with the Senate. So a lot of this is just jockeying for position. And it's almost like they're going to have chips to pass back and forth. You get this that you want, but I want this. Um, I should note that the uh, House budget cut something called the UNC Policy Collaboratory, which um, was a Senate priority and happens to be led by the former science advisor to Senate leader Phil Berger. Uh, so that was clearly on the House side uh, a slap at the Senate and the opportunity to to have something that clearly the Senate is going to want to keep funding um, that the House can say, well, we need you to give us something in exchange for uh, this. So I, I think the... Yeah, that for, was something they put in place just last year. I think Jeff Warren, right, is the yeah, policy Jeff Warren, uh, yeah, he, director he, over there. Yeah, he's, he's one of the leaders of the uh, organization at UNC. It's created some backlash from uh, UNC faculty who feel like it's sort of uh, kind of the legislature's pet project in the university, which they feel like raises some academic freedom issues. So it's been fairly controversial. Uh, but that's just one of many, many bargaining chips we'll, we'll go through. Uh, the big question now is, will we have a final budget by the end of the month, because the fiscal year ends June 30th. Uh, two years ago, we were still working on a budget in late September. Uh, House Speaker Tim Moore said Thursday that he uh, firmly believes that they can get this done in a couple of weeks. They're going to hit the ground running next week, um, and he thinks they can get a budget by June 30th, but uh, I should know that they say that every year. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Craig, you followed the gun bill this uh, week, and this is a bill that basically would say that you don't have to have a permit anymore for carrying a handgun concealed. Uh, so it's filed by some of the more conservative legislators in the House, and one might have thought that it might have just gone into a committee that never meets or a committee that uh, like is used to bury bills and is never seen again. But it actually came out and passed two committees in rapid succession. So what happened? Why did that happen? Yeah, that is curious because the bill had been filed quite a, a couple months ago anyway, and it sort of just sat there dormant, dormant, dormantly for the most uh, part, and then all of a sudden this week started moving uh, through a couple committees and uh, with a kind of a last-minute rewrite, too, that I don't think many people saw this coming as as a real issue. Uh, most of the legislature has been focused on the budget, but uh, this bill would, for the most part, allow anybody that to, to anybody who's an adult and isn't prohibited for some other reason from carrying a gun to carry a gun concealed any place you can carry a gun in open. In most places, you can carry a gun on your holster, uh, you know, unless it's posted, don't bring guns here. 
So um, there were there are some exceptions uh, there the, where there would still be a concealed weapon permit that you might need for a variety of reasons. I guess one place is if there's places where you can't carry a gun, but you could theoretically still carry a concealed weapon. But I guess that would have to be some like a restaurant that said it's okay to put a gun in a holster. You know, not okay to put a gun in a holster, but uh, it's okay to bring it concealed. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've, ever seen, I don't think like I've that, seen one so. of those. So it's kind of limited uh, places where this might um, might arise. Uh, so it's oh, the other thing it does is it really, in effect, lowers the age from 21 to 18. 21 is the age where you have to be at least 21 years old to get a concealed carry permit. This bill simply says anyone 18 years of older or older can carry a gun openly or concealed without having to get a permit. So it, it's pretty significant. It's already getting some reaction. Uh, I've been hearing from people uh, all week, uh, including gun owners and real gun aficionados. I talked to a guy today who said he's got a, a pistol in every car. I don't know how many cars he had, but I kind of had the impression. One. <laughs> well, it was him. He said his wife's armed, his kids are armed, his grandkids are armed. So I... This was like Craven County. I don't know. Maybe that's just the way it is out there. But uh, this guy um, is adamantly, along with the other people I heard from, adamantly opposed to doing away with a requirement to get a concealed carry permit because along with that comes some training and some responsibility. Uh, and really, the yeah, way, what do you have to do to get a to get one of these permits? Now you you, you have to go you, through some kind of background. There's check a background check training. that county sheriffs take, and that's been controversial because some of them are more aggressive about it than other than others. And it also, uh, you know, it just you have to be like I said, uh, 21, and you have to have a clean record and that the sort of thing. The training is actually pretty uh, pretty difficult. Is I, it? No. I know a couple people who have concealed mm. uh, carry permits, but didn't get it their first time through. Um, mm. You have to go in and prove that you, you know, obviously know how to handle your gun. You can, you know, load it within a certain amount of time, um, hit a target from a certain distance, um, and, you know, obviously take mm. courses on gun safety and the laws surrounding mm. when you can and can't hmm. so shoot not, people. So it's not just a three-hour class of... No, no, it's, <laughs> uh, it, you know, and I, it's expensive. I think it's like $90 or something mm. like that usually. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not kind of it's not a rubber stamp for sure. Um, you know, several years ago, and I think when we first started having concealed carry permit requirements in the state, there was a lot of hue and cry that this is going to increase violence. There's going to be people walking around with guns, and they're going to start shooting each other. And that has not hasn't borne out. There has not been any real uh, upsurge in violence associated with concealed permit carry owners at all. Uh, so. But this gun, you know, goes way beyond that and virtually eliminates the permit. And uh, so so people are concerned about it. It is, as you mentioned, uh, being run by a group of four of the more cons most conservative uh, members of the, I guess they must be kind of the core of what has recently been dubbed the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and they are... Um, you know, it, they put it in terms of liberties and constitution and, you know, the, the high and mighty uh, reasons for doing it. Um, and proponents of this have basically said that you should be able to have one and have a, if you can wear a gun out in the open, you should be able to put a coat on and yeah, still not be Right. In There's a practical aspect, which is if I can have a gun in a holster and suddenly it gets cold, I put my coat on and then suddenly it's a violation of the law because you don't have a permit to conceal your gun. That's their main argument, and apparently some number of other states have, have seen it that way, too, and have, and have gone this direction. Um, 
So why they're, why they're moving it now, I don't really know, other than it would, the most obvious thing would be to be some overture from leadership to the most conservative members of the, uh, of the House Republican caucus. You know, you do this, we'll, for us, we'll move uh, your, a gun bill this year. Because we haven't really seen many gun bills lately. In the beginning, when the legis- Republicans took over in 2011, there was just a whole raft of social issues that lasted for several years. And guns, there was one gun bill after another. And that's kind of petered out. We haven't really seen that lately. So I don't know what they're getting for this, if it had to do with budget support for the budget. I don't know what their numbers are, how many uh, of these Freedom Caucus guys there are. But it does seem like it was some, some kind of trade-off. And I suppose we don't know whether uh, it's just a matter of uh, uh, letting this get an airing and then that's all they're going to get or whether there is some agreement to actually let it go forward and pass the house yeah uh, and move on to the to the senate i think it's going to go to the house next week i heard but i don't i i think there's definitely been leadership clearance up to that point yeah that's what i heard it was clear that the, the the message from above was let's move this bill whether that was as far as the deal goes you know i don't know i i think it's going to run into some trouble uh, on the house because if I'm getting the phone calls I'm getting the, they're getting a lot more calls yeah and it's interesting though sort of the the bargaining chip aspect of this because the bill had kind of uh, disappeared earlier in the session I, I will note that the budget vote uh, th- this was something I noticed this year that I haven't seen in past years for the house budget usually that freedom caucus right. group is a no vote on the budget right. this year only one of them Jeff Collins uh, voted against the budget and he was the only Republican out of all of them to vote no on the budget. So you have to wonder if mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was part of the deal. Because some of the things that those that group of Republicans have objected to in the budget, business incentives, uh, tax breaks, that sort of thing, they're still in this year's budget. But this year, this those, that group decided to vote yes. Yeah, that was unusual that Collins was the only uh, no vote on that. So, All right. Well, I think we'll take a break and we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. All right, welcome back to Domecast, and now it's time for Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most important person in this week's news uh, will be. Craig, who's your headliner of the week? I think he's probably been a candidate, if not a nominee, or if not a selection before, but William Barber, president of the state NAACP, for uh, not only leading a uh, another protest on the on legislature in which we had, and this one was over health care, lack of health care uh, access, um, both at the federal level and not expanding Medicaid on the state level. He uh, led a sit-down protest and was arrested himself, and along with him, his wife and daughter were also arrested. All right, and we found out as part of the reporting on that that uh, Reverend Barter, Barber's daughter was actually uh, had surgery uh, done by Ben Carson uh, in her childhood. Um, so... Uh, so Reverend Barber in the hat for headliner of the week. Colin, who's your headliner? Going with a sort of an obscure pick this week, uh, State Representative Charles Graham, who's a Democrat from uh, Robeson County and one of the uh, 
more, um, uh, I guess the only uh, American Indian member of the legislature, interestingly enough, he passed a budget amendment uh, shortly after midnight uh, for early Friday morning uh, that managed to get some funding for one of uh, Governor Roy Cooper's priorities, which is this uh, Ready Sites initiative uh, to essentially put in some infrastructure in rural counties uh, to try to get some manufacturing jobs in. Uh, this was something that uh, was not in the budget initially. Um, Graham had tried earlier in the day to get it in, but the Republicans objected to the source of the money he was using. Uh, he finally got the budget chairs on the Republican side to agree to it uh, sometime before the midnight session, uh, but still hit, hit a lot of turbulence from uh, Republican members who uh, had some objections to both the program uh, and the funding and the late addition of the funding, uh, but still managed to get the amendment passed and, and managed to get uh, uh, one minor budget victory for the governor who's uh, not been able to get a lot of his uh, pet programs uh, into this year's budget. So Charles Graham uh, from Lumberton. Okay. Charles Graham in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Will Doran, who's your headliner? Well, Colin said he had an obscure choice, but I'm going to one-up him with Logan Martin, a staffer for uh, Nelson Dollar, who is the uh, the head budget writer for the House. Um, he was on, uh, on fire, really, on a uh, was it Tuesday, I believe, or Wednesday? Wednesday. On Wednesday, um, tweeting out every single detail of the budget uh, from Nelson Dollar's account, and uh, uh, you know, in a state where you know we don't always have the uh, the best transparency in these kind of things, uh, you could see every single amendment, every single tweak as it was happening in real time. See all the you know official documents, and uh, you know just. Really, really great for uh, you know for anyone who is really trying to follow along with the budget and uh, and the process. So, uh, kudos for the transparency there from uh, Nelson Dollar's office and uh, Logan Martin for making it happen. Okay, Logan Martin, more please, more please. All right, uh, Logan Martin in the hat for headliner of the week. And uh, lastly, Katie Glick, your first time doing uh, headliner of the week. Uh, who, who is it? So I'm going to go with Ivanka Trump, uh, going a different way in terms of uh, the, the known quantity uh, scale, I suppose. Um, she uh, is known to have been uh, supportive of, of staying in the uh, international agreement uh, as it relates to climate change. Uh, and she's also someone who is uh, considered a very influential with her father. Uh, this time around, of course, uh, he went in a different direction uh, than she did as it relates to, to the, this climate change uh, agreement as he went ahead and, and uh, pulled back uh, the, the U.S. involvement there, and so now all eyes are on Ivanka as she looks to reassert herself in the sort of ever-changing White House power structure. Okay, uh, Ivanka Trump in the hat for headliner of the week. Well, uh, I am going to uh, uh, go with Ivanka Trump because wow. uh, <laughs> we don't get we don't get guests back on this program if they lose uh, headliner <laughs> of the week. Uh, so. Uh, you're going to be, you're the winner and you can uh, oh take goodness. home your valuable prize, uh, which we will tell you about right after we uh, finish recording. Oh, this is so uh, exciting. And, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. Uh, so Ivanka Trump is our headliner of the week. Uh, thanks a lot for listening and uh, catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.